Hello, and welcome to Wonderstruck. I am your host, Elizabeth Revere. I'm a clinical psychologist, a yoga teacher, and a graduate of Harvard Divinity School. I'm really curious about our experiences of wonder and awe and how they transform us. The great Russell Brand is my guest on this episode, and Russell, known to many for his comedy and acting, talks about personal transformation and a total commitment to spiritual work as his path to survival. Russell's gifts for communication and education are evident, illuminating, and frankly delightful throughout our conversation. His ongoing and deepening study of consciousness and identity make him a very compelling teacher. With profound fluency, Russell explores the temptations of ecstasy, the need for serenity, learning to embrace a higher power, why he strives to live a life of service, and what brings him closest to God. As Russell tells me, these are the big ideas that must occupy him. The alternative, he says, is death. Welcome to Wonderstruck, and our guest today is Russell Brand. He is a podcast host, a comedian, actor, philanthropist, community builder, meditation teacher, husband, dad, and pet owner of, what, 20 cats you just told me? Yeah, I think it's 20 now. (laughs) It's amazing. I love it. There's some very cute ones that I have just seen. So thank you for having us here at your beautiful studio. It's really it's wonderful to see you again. Thank you. It's lovely to see you again. Thank you for that lovely introduction. I wouldn't like to be individually scored on each of those categories that you listed as a meditation teacher, as a father. I think I would aggregate around mediocre, but I'm certainly happy to have so many qualities tagged in an intro. Well, you're, you're very welcome. And as far as those categories go, we just, I think we have to just be good enough. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It seems so. I have a, some questions that I wrote and rewrote to ask you. And um, one of the questions that I have for you is that actually one of the first times that I met you, it was on one of your Zoom phone calls. And it was back in 2020. And we didn't really meet, but you had called out my name. And I was so nervous that I couldn't answer. I was just like, staring like that. And then, you know, we started this whole Wonderstruck engagement and, you know, doing some work with Harvard Divinity School and five books. And you came to our embodiment symposium this summer. And, you know, again, it was, it was just, it was so wonderful to meet you. You have like a very calming presence. And so it was easier to talk to you, but I was nervous and anxious. And I was curious as someone like yourself, who's a performer and an actor, like, how is it for you? Do you ever have that kind of anxiety when you're about to do something, whether it's a performance or a show or even going to a dinner party? How do you handle anxiety? I have near constant anxiety is how I would describe it. Like sort of even now and not in particularly related, not in particular related to what we're doing, but like I can always generally locate some feeling of I guess for simplicity's sake, let's call it anxiety in my body. But one of the things that I'm trying to do, Liz, is not call it anxiety, but just to recognize it as a feeling and to try to examine why it is that I have a preference. This is because of a meditation I was recently sent by that guy who's he's called something like Suki Rinpoche, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. And where he said, talked about beautiful monsters, like your anxiety and your shame and fear, beautiful monsters. Lovely. So because like a lot of people in recovery, 
uh, I do feel those things pretty regular. I'm just trying to experience them, experience them, ambient anxiety. Now, when it comes to sort of anxiety that is in relation to an event, I suppose I have become over time more adept at seeing that that is a preparatory tool that potentially this mm -hmm. feeling can be metabolized into action. And that is how I use it. So if I'm anxious or nervous about an event, you know, if it's performance, I'm, I can deal with it. Tell the truth, a dinner party, I, I, you know, like, cause one of the things when we did that thing, where I came to Italy for your conference, mm. I was, I think I told you at the time and I told Camilla and the people that you work with, I said, oh, can I just do the bit where I'm talking? Cause I'm much more at ease with the dynamic of mm. oration or, or at least public speaking Interesting. than ordinary communication. I don't feel particularly comfortable in those circumstances. My mate, James, he says we're not, nighttime people anymore he's in recovery like me mm. we're daytime people mm -hmm. now i attend a lot of 12-step stuff you know that's sort of where i live spiritually and perhaps emotionally you might say and in those environments one of the things i know i enjoy is that the structure that a 12-step environment often has a, a, a stated explicit beginning a main share is the is customary to refer to it as and timed shares back i feel quite comfortable with that as a person who deals a lot with chaos and has at points had rather a chaotic life i have a i i enjoy structure even though i know chaos is a big part of who i am and is part of the access i have to efficacy comes via chaos and perhaps mm. this sense mm. of abiding anxiety is a component of that so in a sense my attitude towards anxiety is sometimes i bring my presence to it and my awareness to it and i accept it At other times i recognize that it, there is some utility in it um, and sometimes i frankly fall victim to it <laughs> that's a very thoughtful wise answer i i love that you said that some of your e efficacy comes through the chaos and yet as long as there's like a frame or some kind of structure around it it helps bring your creativity i suppose into being yes and i love i mean that's it's just i love how you said that and um as for things like the beautiful monsters that you mentioned um it makes me think of tara brock who has this idea of like uh, bringing them to tea so i can't tell you how many tea parties i've had with fear <laughs> you know more than i would like to count but it's it is a way of like okay let's like kind of take some of the edge out of this so that it's somehow manageable. I feel that um, perhaps Rumi and his guest house analogy oh, is yeah. the best uh, iteration of this idea that we allow them to visit us and we don't try to usher them out the door. Uh, I suppose as an addict and perhaps as a human Epicu epicureanism remains pretty strong in me and i recognize now that i have this relationship with uh, ecstasy and abandon and ecstasy is a religious word ecstatic states i suppose imply a blending blurring perhaps even dissolution of boundary and a return to 
some kind of unitary undergirding that many spiritual people believe is the source of all reality, that the persona in its temporal nature can only facilitate a certain amount of happiness. But when we live in a culture that continually augments the boundaries of self, celebrates individualism, materialism and progressivism and tells us that, that the only the things that can be calculated and measured are valuable, even though our subjective experience continually is at odds with that idea, it's difficult not to think of myself as Russell and Russell's wants and Russell's fears as the priority. But I do on occasion and in particular in say ecstasy, which I've experienced much less often than I'd like, because if it was up to me, I would not come down from ecstasy. I'd stay there. <laughs> I'd get that ecstasy and I'd live in it, you know, but I live a different life now. And, uh, and I suppose I have to take a more meandering path to bliss, although I'm always drawn to the shamans, sages, rishis and saints that speak of bliss as sanctioned and even sacramental rather than the more prudish and ascetic moral philosophical, philosophical and political commentators that believe in a kind of stringency in being. I don't like to mm. live cold, but sometimes I do have to live quite serenely. Mm -hmm. No, I hear what you're saying. And what you mentioned about the, the shaman aspect and living life in this way with, with the, the ecstatic and the connection to something that's a more interconnected web and way of with everything, with each other, with nature and ourselves, other people in the world, rather than this kind of very strong, staunch individualistic way. I mean, it makes me think of well, of course, spirituality and how you kind of got your way into that that experience. I mean, you've said that you came to spirituality through being forced, right? Like coming from the place of addiction into a recovery. And yet you still chose to take that path, right? Which was obviously not an easy one. To, well, you, had, you had no choice, right? The death was the other option, right? Yeah. It says in the literature of the program that I belong to, to live a life on a spiritual basis or face an alcoholic death is not an easy decision to make. And I like that it says mm. that you would have to think about it. What will I do? Live a life on a spiritual basis or will I go with this? drug-induced or alcohol-induced death. It's not, well, obviously I don't want to die, so I have to do this. Right, but right. I, I, like many people, wrestle with that choice. Because, and that, that choice comes again, because I think continually through passion, we are invited back into the material. Through carnality, Always. we are invited back into attachment. And it seems when you, we are contextualized by a sanctioned selfishness, pretty easy to live selfishly. In, and find ways of writing, uh, underwriting that selfishness. It's not hard. It's very difficult. I think I was thinking today, in fact, that that's what they must be, the saints. They must never leave the place of service. They must, they must be able to spot when they are at the turning point. They must notice, uh-oh, I'm just about to turn into my selfish, I'm gonna go selfish again, back mm. into the ego. No, think about someone else. Think about, are you being of service mm. in this moment? Are you loving God? Are you being of service to the person around you? And 
I'm this for me. It, it, I, when I say is it a choice, of course it's a choice in that I now know, you know, I'm aware that I could now go and get drugs, or I could pursue sort of illicit behaviours or, or whatever. And I, I, I suppose I've just the program works. The program I use works. It's a pretty amazing piece of folk technology. The acceptance yeah. that it won't work again. The belief that it's possible to change. The willingness to hand over your life to a secondary force, an ulterior force, a bigger force, perhaps. And uh, whether that, even if that's um, a, a philosophy rather than a supreme being, even though I'm down the supreme being path myself, yeah. um, it, 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 it works. This stuff, but it, it isn't an easy choice, and I haven't entirely made it. But then I can't entirely make it now because I only live here now. Mm -hmm. Well, I think of that as like you know the, that first step about life becomes unmanageable, and I choose to surrender to something greater than myself. As I mean, that is that is the path of spirituality. That is the path of like, of, of a mystic. It's a path of, you know, giving over. It's like recognizing that it's not just about me. It, it, there is something greater and there's a profound sense of power in surrender. You know, it might seem paradoxical, but it's really engaging and moving. And, you know, I was thinking about that. You had spoken, it was a beautiful interview that you did with Rick Rubin. I loved it. Yeah, I love him. It was really powerful. It gave me goosebumps throughout intermittently. You know, you brought up this um, book by Rogan Taylor, the the Death and Resurrection Show. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know that book. Well, only because of you, so thank you. But um, I was thinking, so I was, I looked into it, and this idea of being an artist is like kind of a shaman and holding all of this profound energy and creativity. Maybe like your chaos that you spoke about a little bit, and then what do you do with it? You know, and if you can't handle I mean if it's overpowering you know it's like the descent on um, the shaman like the the almost by definition the shaman goes into the descent into hell or burns up and reemerges, right in a way that they become the truth teller um the prophet in that way and uh, you know and I think about that also within the 12-step program like going in kind of going in coming from you're in hell and then coming back out and having seeing the world being more open to the world from this spiritual perspective. So I think about you in that context. That's real kind. You're a very devoted and lovely person. You're very kind and open and committed. It's really nice to be around you. I noticed I'm in a different type of mood than I was five minutes ago. Oh, that's you're great to hear. Really, glad to hear that. Yeah, you're easy to be around. Thanks. I am tense person, you know, like I... I don't know, you know, sort of T.S. Eliot, I should have been some ragged claws on a seabed floor or whatever it is, T.S. Eliot, I don't mangle T.S. Eliot here. But like, I sometimes feel like monastery, really, monastery for me, like that I should be contained. Mm. I don't do well in civilization, not because I'm above it, but because I am beneath it, not because I don't, I'm not tempted, but because I am tempted, because stimulation to me is uh, irre irresistible, irresistible. I'm mm. sometimes all mouth. He um, said this, I heard this, one of the great things about being in a, a recovering drug addict and alcoholic is that it means that you are never able to lose yourself in your culturally allotted position. For example, because I became a celebrity because of being in films. Like the, but if you continue to be a 12-step person, you'll regularly attend meetings wherever you go. And this 
will mean that you will encounter people that are from the world perhaps that you came from or from wherever you know informed of course by the culture and geography of the region that you find mm -hmm. yourself in so i hear the uh, ordinary wisdom continually and i'm reminded that there's more interesting stuff in this world than what i think about and what i worry about and that i can get pretty lost in here and mm -hmm. still be pretty self-centered man and someone said the other day it's a really good use of something that's on the borderline of being a cliche but if you stay with it he says something pretty interesting he said that thing about how when a kid opens a present it might as well play with the wrapping as well as the present he then talked about that this suggests that it is the subjective rather than objective reality that determines the experience that you're having i.e i spoke to gabo Mate recently and he said he said you know i know what it's like you attach to a person and the stars seem brighter and the moon is beckoning yeah but it's all in you it's all in you. And this, alongside this thing about the kid and the wrapping paper and the guy that I spoke to there, made me feel like, yeah. Like, and like Michael Singer continually says, why are you shutting yourself off from the bliss? Why are you shutting yourself exactly. off from the joy? Why would you like go, I'm angry now. Like, yeah. well, don't do it. Don't do it. This is why you have to live the spiritual life. This is why you have no choice. The problem we have these days, I was talking to Deepak Chopra yesterday, was, that it's being sold, let's face it, to us as sundry, as sundry, as supplementary. But my friend Fern Cotton, who should talk to you one day, she's very brilliant. Yeah, um, yeah. I, love, host I love her, actually. A bunch of stuff. Yeah, she's fantastic. She said, it's not a side dish, it's the main course. It's the main course. Yeah. That's the reality. The primary reality is the spiritual reality, your subjective experience. What is it to be you, to feel your body, to feel your anxiety in your body, to observe your thoughts, to observe your wants? What is this experience of being you? This is the opposite of materialism. Of course, in the material world, it's easy to say, yeah, but if you don't have a nice house and if you don't have access to mates and if you don't have access to resources, you will suffer. But all of us know now, don't we, that we've been around the billionaires and the powerful, and I suppose not everyone's been around them, but I have, and it's not worked <laughs> out. <laughs> like, I know what it's like now. Yeah. And we know where that, see someone like Amma, She's just yeah. gone, I'm only this now. I'm yeah. only this now. She's only that. She's just doing that. It seems so trivial, so trite to just embrace and hug your way through life. But somehow she's become uh, the Oprah Winfrey of that <laughs> and generated schools and hospitals out of it. Yeah. And then you know that there's that priest class around her because she's from a fishing village. She's a low oh. caste, dark skinned Southern Indian woman. I don't know okay. about Indian caste system, but it seems that it's, that's not top drawer right. over in their deal. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, but the priests that hang around her, like Shubhamarita, this guy, they're oh. like Brahmin. And they, like when she was 17, she went all wacky, started cuddling everyone and not being proper. And like <laughs> some people were like, get her out of here, she's nuts. And then the priest folk came and went, oh, no, she's a reincarnation of the Kali spirit. And then they set up a whole cult around her. I don't know if that's the right word or certainly not the word they'd perhaps prefer, but an ashram anyway. And the upshot of it is, is, you know, by their fruits shall we know them. Millions of people have been helped after those terrible floods and the tsunami of like yeah. I know, 20 years ago, whenever that was, you know, hospitals were built, schools were built, women are being helped, people are being re-educated, all sorts of stuff's occurring around her. Yeah. She Is it effective? These, are, I suppose, are the two questions. One is... How do you feel? Do you feel all right? And two, is there a practice? Are people being helped 
or is it just a subset of individualism and selfishness? I'm quite capable, obviously, of lapsing into a spirituality that's just about, yeah, I feel all right. Well, if that's what it's about, you might as well smoke crack. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, spiritualism as a commodity or spiritual materialism, that kind of thing. Yeah, and as a salve. And like it's not... You you can buy it. Yeah, you can buy it and you use it for yourself the same way you would use any commodity. And and like when, um, like... Our man JC, the great one, Jesus Christ, <laughs> where it, like it's a uh, feed and clothe the poor, be among poor people, and I do things like that sometimes, usually when desperate, and it never fails to lift me up. It never fails to lift me up. I forget myself. I remember who I am. I forget myself, and I remember who I, I am. I forget myself, and I remember who I am. It's beautiful. Exactly. That's that is it, right? Yeah. I love that. I don't I mean, do very much, though, because I'm usually sort of thinking of whether or not my eyebrows look all right. <laughs> well, you know, we all are, right? It's well, hard. They're okay, these guys, the eyebrows. <laughs> do you think Your it's eyebrows okay look if I good. drink this? They look good. Thank you. My daughter, I have two daughters. My younger daughter, her eyebrows are the exact same shape of mine. So I look at her face and I wonder and marvel uh, at the genetics. I, to see my own eyebrows looking back at me. It's fascinating, isn't it? Mm. it of is course, the eyebrows aren't looking because there's no optic nerve there, but they are framing <laughs> the thing that's looking back at me. <laughs> and the other daughter, it's less genetically obvious, but there is something else. There is something else. I, I'm not being so mm. vain as to suggest that, uh, that the inhered within them is something that is uniquely mine. Far from it, in fact, that the universal is present. The universal is present. Some remembering of them. What about that bit mm-hmm. in the Vedas that sort of says, again this way, again this way, as if it's some limitless... If, te- if spatial and temporal reality are constructs based on our understanding of reality, which is based on, to a degree, sort of, all right, post-Newtonian physics and now to a degree quantum physics, where, by the way, all this stuff starts to yeah. untangle and entangle in ways that are baffling. Very funny, yes. Yes. If we are outside of space and time, outside of space and time, we can we live this endlessly we live this endlessly and perhaps there is you know there is some literal familiarity in like feeling the presence of your daughter you think i've known you a long long time (sighs) i love that yes absolutely because in some ways we absolutely have if you are going to go down that trajectory you know i actually wrote this i have this cute i'm not you've done proper questions some are highlighted some are amended what you just said is kind of what I, is a quotation here. I wrote on this note that I just have to read because I think it's really cool. It's from um, uh, Hindu Shaivism and looking at this concept, well, concept phenomenon of Shakti. So what you just said, think about this, like Visgara Shakti is an ever functioning, undeniable urge in the direction of expansion, of infinity, of freedom, of bliss, present at the center of the yoga body, present in the heart, continuously expanding from within and with the beating and the movement of the heart. That's pretty good. Isn't that good? Yeah, I'd like that. That's kind of what you just said. This one here says chit shakti, chit shakti, Mm. conscious energy. Mm. Be aware, direct the energy. That thing there about ever expanding bliss coming from the heart. I like that. And freedom, freedom, be who you are, be who you are. And this is where inevitably necessarily how could it be otherwise spirituality has to become politicized it has to become about the maneuvering of power now sometimes it can't I be separate it's impossible it, yeah. to be it's like nothing is real nothing is really separate right it is all this interconnected web and then you you be who you are is also this way of being interconnected and expansive 
right? Yeah. It's convenient for it to be separated because, of course, any empirical encounter with spirit will inform you that there is a deep moral duty that would profoundly affect the ability of elite establishment machinery to function. Once you encounter mm. that, you have to change everything. Mm. You have to implement the principles implied by a unitary experience, by the right that the shared right that we have to access to this bliss. Mm -hmm. The removal of secondary ideologies mapped onto this potential perfection, even though, of course, I suppose those people that I encounter at the esoteric end, the upper echelon to all this, they seem to sort of have a adjacent to nihilistic approach like this is it this is the way it's unfolding it doesn't need you to interfere it doesn't need you prodding about in political systems <laughs> it doesn't require it like you know maybe you meet uh i don't know who have i met that i felt like that many people they seem to have a kind of an acceptance yeah. that we're not like this is unfolding that god is god is beyond all of that that god don't require you to do but then when i think of gandhi or malcolm x they got stuck right in yeah. So, I mean, are you saying that there, there's a way that we have we can have hope? I must tell you, in spite of everything, in spite of my ongoing personal failings, and sometimes in spite of my inability to run my own life or even get a pair of socks on correctly, <laughs> I somehow I, I have this uninterrupted faith that there is going to be a profound transformation in mm. our terrestrial consciousness that will bring about a different way of living that will be better for the vast for all people for all people not even the majority for all people but you know i love I have, hearing you I've say that i've been wrong before no i love hearing you say that and i love i you know i feel like you you and rick rubin were talking about that a little bit i've heard you talk about that with a vandana shiva to a certain extent you know in different ways of saying saying this and then how you also just said when you were talking with Fern Cotton that that spirituality it's the main course and you know if my little sticky note is accurate with the um, Shaivist that it we can't stop this we can't stop the heart or the spirituality or this uh, you know phenomenon that infuses us that we have access to that's love or this bliss even when you know things are like kind of horrific and devastating <laughs> you know when you look at some of these things some of the things that you that you talk about um you know on your podcast even sometimes i'm like oh my god and you do it with aplomb and humor and thank you because it makes it digestible but even within all of that that there is this current that there is this capacity for transformation you know you've experienced it right i mean you're in your own life through you know going into 12 step or whatever it might be for a person these transformative shamanistic dives and re resurrections that i do feel and hope that there is this possibility and potential i like how terence mckenna talks about god and mm. obviously with him is always not always but seems to be often uh, via the psychedelic and shamanic yeah. experience with mm. which he was so well versed when terence mckenna says of orthodoxy of the paraphernalia around conventional religion this force which i think you described there in the shakti note you bought it appears through many centralized faiths that it needs to be approached 
kind of gingerly and superstitiously and that you have to do things in the right order and it's full of protocols and but he says it's this this is like god <laughs> this potent mm. powerful force that's just going to deliver this is an incontrovertible telos this solar force this cosmic power i'm encouraged by that although i suppose within it is the idea that perhaps our human aims and ends are of little significance and i suppose that that's perhaps why we have to get ourselves in line somehow with the eternal when i'm caught up in the momentary by which i mean my temporal goals i'm not saying that we don't want to be here in the absolute right, present right, right now but that there is an eternity that is beyond my wants and my fears that i have to have some kind of relationship with and it seems to me at least that that relationship requires some cultivation and i think all the time i don't know about you liz about the psychedelic experience the shamanic experience about how as a person in 20 years now in recovery that i have a hankering and a intrigue for those kind of methods but i also mm. recognize that mm -hmm. for someone like me um i perhaps have to be cautious and i've spoken to some pretty great people and some pretty experienced people in those fields w what about you are you interested in yeah it? you know it's such an interesting question and phenomenon the whole psychedelic aspect i mean i you know i don't have a ton of experience with with drugs per se right i i've I'm kind of, <laughs> I've, I mean, I've always been like too neurotic and afraid of like, oh my God, what is it, you know, paranoid about what would it, what it would do to me. Having said that, you know, what's happening now with this whole microdosing phenomenon and psychedelics and MDMA for, for trauma, you know, because of where we are with trauma and how there's such a profound need to help people through that process, you know, aspects of present company included. It's like, I think it's, I think it's a good thing. I think it's been really helpful for people as long as my only concern is that it doesn't become like that's the only way or it's a panacea or it's a quick fix, that it doesn't become like take a drug and you're done. Because the whole point of it, right, is, that, is to help use something like psilocybin as a conduit to get something awakened within inside of you that's more sustaining and full you know, you're the full truth of who you are in that way um, and feeling connected to something greater. I think that it's also possible to, for us to do that through techniques of meditation, some aspects of yoga, honestly, through even the 12-step community. You know, one of the, the three jewels of Buddhism is, you know, the, the Buddha, the teachings, right? And the, and the Sangha, the community. And it's like the community is unparalleled with teachings and buddha i mean it is really powerful it's got a transcendent vibe to it when you're really feeling connected to people and can feel connected to everybody you're right about that that's twice today now oh, sangha and mm. community and team and family and you know if you can have a tendency to get a bit self-obsessed it's good to remember that it's good to remember that you don't have to do everything it's good to remember that you're not alone it's good to remember that it's not all about me it's nice isn't it it's sort of reassuring it's really reassuring mm. it's really reassuring so i don't i mean i hope that answers that that kind of question because yeah, it's like you're worried I, about it being commodified or sort of somehow becoming re reduced and how yes. can it not in a sense that that's i suppose what esotericism 
is about you know the protection the sacred cults secrets this information is not for everybody mm. there are perhaps then even if there is a, a ubiquity behind apparent separateness it seems there are staves and hierarchies i'm not suggesting inferiority although gosh is it difficult to talk about hierarchies without talking about layers or levels and power dynamics but at the level of the individual, I don't think anyone's advocating for sameness. I think people no. are advocating rather broadly for diversity. And I suppose that in so much that... I find it easy to understand, sadly, as I perhaps have said to you, because I know I think it frequently, that uh, when I think of a disco ball, you know, a glitter ball or a mirror ball, is that the best way to say it? Of the, of the words disco ball, glitter ball, mirror ball, mirror ball, because of that uh, Arctic Monkey song, maybe mirror ball will land on as the sort of better one. That the light hits the mirror ball and the light shines off in all sorts of different directions, but the light, the source is the same, the ref whatever the refractory oh. material device is that brings things into material through the process of evolution, that is the same thing. But the little bits of light, they are all projected differently. So maybe that. That's great. I love that. It's perfect. And Joseph Campbell with his thing of, uh, you know, if the janitor is looking after a municipal building and one of the light bulbs dies, the janitor doesn't go, oh no, that's my favorite light bulb. He just puts another light bulb in. It's all coming from the same source. Mm. It's all cool. Yeah, that's really cool. I like that a lot. Light. It de does appear light. to crop up universally and archetypally throughout most of the great faiths and scriptures. This is the analogy that seems most useful. Absolutely. The idea of the light of consciousness, that it's kind of like light, that it's not an inadvertent byproduct of bio biological processes. It's somehow beyond beyond them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it is. There is that whole talk about the light and the light body, you know, the transformation or the, yeah, the movement of the body into a into light as it comes in and out of existence. I'm sorry if that sounds a little bit out there. No, it don't. Do you want to <laughs> check all of your notes? Make sure you're asking me the questions oh, that you want to. The... We ain't in a rush, but I just want to make sure that you don't feel like you come out of here and that you've not been, uh, as I heard Greta Gerwig once say on the telly, I was watching something on the telly, even though I've met Greta Gerwig and I really think she's pretty incredible. Hmm. I heard her say, stay true to the person that came up with the idea. Like, you know, I think in to her work as a filmmaker and often directing scripts that she herself has written. Nice. You've written these questions. Do you still care about them? Well, we talked about community. Have you gone off them? Um, do you so want to come to community and yeah, do your is thing it, is it, there? Is it here? It's near here. Wonderstruck. You want to do your thing Wonderstruck at community. Yeah. It's between the 14th and 16th of July. Yeah, I'd love to. I love talk it. Talk to Nick before you go. You could curate some stuff there if you'd like to. You're such an um, entrepreneurial person. It's fantastic. Do I'm I have sure to be in an ice, tub, ice bathtub to do it? Yes. <laughs> there are <laughs> initiation <laughs> processes, but they are conducted fairly and justly and consensually. Fantastic. Fantastic. I, 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 would, I would do it at community. I think I would do it. But now that's someone's recording that I would have to do that. So I asked you about community, which is, you know, and I'm glad you brought that up. And thank you for the invitation. So and I've asked you a little bit about God. I just I have to repeat this to you because you said it and I think it's beautiful. You have said, it's like, what do, what do, you know, what, we have a little bit talked about what is your experience, your sense of God. But you, you said God is an underlying oneness from which all phenomena emanate and that all reality is a kind of symphony 
emerging from an instrument of God, which I guess is like the mirror ball. I'm consistent. <laughs> I've not changed my mind. Oh, God's a bunch of separate things. No. So I, I just I just love that. I think that's so beautiful. All right. So I asked that. That metaphor that. comes up a lot, isn't it? I guess the flute of Krishna is that. The flute yes. of Krishna, he is playing that. He's yes. playing reality into yes. being. Yes. And it's, you know, kind of circling it back almost to that embodiment aspect or the subtle body and the yoga body and some of these things that we talk about is, you know, the, the music, the vibration of music and the sound bowls and all these things that can get you into that experience of the profound or of the transcendent in a way, you know, with a t big T or a little T, just you feel feeling moved, right? And I think about that, you're, you're kind of both, you're an intellectual, but you do all of these, you do the breathwork practices, which, you know, I was thinking like that gets you into your body, right? That's an embodiment practice. And I was yeah. thinking about these things of like the spiritual perspective of the subtle body or embodiment versus the psychological one and <clears throat> excuse me how they overlap you should do biet biet yes do you know yeah, you, yeah you you showed you showed me you She's showed amazing. me at the symposium yeah, oh, yeah i did it I you did, did it you did i think it. i told her I always tell her when i've done it because i feel she maybe is protective of it and quite rightly she does this wonderful breath technique and she's a friend of mine and she comes to community so you'll meet her there this is a good way of recognizing that the the body is the root to the uh, to the transcendent, and this that dude yes. Suki uh, Rinpoche as well said, um, grounded in body, open of heart, clear of mind. And it's interesting to yeah. hear because sometimes you feel like like people that meditate the whole time feel like they're maybe not going to be focused on their bodies enough, but huh. grounded in the body. Otherwise, you'll try to get into your body with sugar or sex or pornography or exactly self-harm maybe even i don't know like if you don't have a clear relationship with the body i wonder what they're an expression of all of these addictions i wonder what the eating disorders are an expression of i, I wonder how they come through the culture mm. what is the purity behind it what is the pure thing it's a very very complicated thing i've tried to understand it and i don't well that's a lot that's a lot to understand and i can't necessarily tell you answers but i can tell you my associations when you're saying all that I mean, I think of being grounded in the body to transcend. I think of like the root chakra have to, has to, that has to be awake to get to the third eye. I think of the tree of life having roots in order to grow, to hit, you know, to get to its expansiveness. And when you talk of eating disorders, I think of, you know, almost like, you know, and I am, it's probably a bit crass, but like, why wouldn't you have an eating disorder if you have to take in some of the bullshit of the culture? You know, you want to expel it. You want it, you're trying to get something out. Or it can also be very self-annihilating too, like destructive of the self and then purification, the certain aspects of that. It's good, but it doesn't seem to be able to be unraveled um, therapeutically, at least sort of through. Not through here. No. Yeah. Yeah, you have to get into the body. I mean, meditation with the yogic types of meditation, the physical, doing something physical is really helpful, I think, in that way. Maybe all of us want a quick fix a bit because we recognize how adjacent we are to perfection. Maybe all of us feel like, oh, God, it shouldn't be so hard. Does it have to be so arduous? Am I going to have to go to some gym? Am I going to have to slog along some cold, lonely road at 5 a.m. <laughs> watching my breath fog in front of my face just to be able to live another day when I know that God is somehow within me and around me and is all encompassing and everywhere. Why is it so difficult? Why can't it be easy? Why can't I buy it like a drug? Why can't I acquire it with charm somehow? 
Because it wouldn't be meaningful. You know that. All oh, right. Yeah, have that. these contrasts. We've got to have these contrasts. Must we suffer? Is there an intrinsic relationship between passion and suffering? As I was informed just today, there is linguistically, semantically, that the etymology of the word passion, patio, I think he said, ah. means to suffer. The passion of the Christ. You know, that wasn't Christ boogieing on down and getting on it. That was our Lord being slashed up and lashed up and knowing what it is to have a body on his way to the transcendence, the ascendance, and to the re birth yes i suppose you're right that there is a something of a binary relationship between light and dark and suffering and passion and perhaps that that's a that that dualism is also false because perhaps from another perspective that would look like absolute unity outside the spatial and temporal dimension why would you even look at the chronology of mm. passion into suffering of attachment into loss I suppose that's what I meant earlier when I said access to the eternal. If you mm. maintain access to the eternal, then I'll be able to withstand disappointment. I'll be able to withstand attack. I'll be able to withstand falling in love and heartbreak and my children growing up and yet yeah. more kittens. Just the, no, I, the see now why they are a litter because they are spilled and strewn about my house in packs of five every couple of months. Another little allotment of those little guys dishing them out on the streets. I am now. Can I take one home? Do you want one? I do. There's an, the current. Excuse me. The current batch ain't ready. They oh, need really? another few weeks. Oh really? Where are you going back to? The United States of America? Yeah. Yeah. You want a New York cat? Yeah. You live in Manhattan, do you? Brooklyn. Is it safe to go out and about? They we have a, a backyard, but yeah, they, does it back onto other people's backyards? Yeah, but they can't get out of our backyard because we have two cats already. Ah, oh. so the cat would be, you know, part of that. It'd be part of that. We've got five currently, and uh, I'll send you some pictures, and you can make a choice, and we'll <laughs> right. fling it across I'm the Atlantic. You, I would, I, my kids would love to have another cat. My husband would be anticipatory and unsettled, but that's okay. He's persuadable, though, your husband. Persuadable, yeah. Because I felt when I met your husband, although he's evidently a person that has achieved much, he was up for doing some breath work and, in fact, yielded his consciousness. He went unconscious. He passed out. Yeah, he embraced it wholeheartedly. He went for it. He went for it. Takes a lot. But going back to that thing you said about... Cats. That, well, no, not the cats. <laughs> Cats and the eternal. Mm. Um, the access to the eternal in that way, then you can tolerate the the intensity of the pain and suffering, right? I mean, that I think at the end of the day is what gets me through or gets people through. You know, it's like if I can feel that I can connect to that and I'm kind of feeling devastated or I'm crying or I'm feeling so alone, if I can connect to that, I can get through it without you know, the quick escape, or I don't have to leave my body, you know, split it off psychologically, mm. you know, get drunk or whatever it is and leave in order to survive it. I can actually be present because I'm connected to this, even though it's really difficult. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. I mean, I suppose I have no choice, but I, at the moment, what it's been about is where is it in your body? before you like when my wife had our first child she educated herself in um mm. they call it hypnobirthing you know yeah 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 and one of the things that i liked because uh, you do the process together of course um was when they looked at the language around birth and the literal process of birth and they said like 
you might want to consider the language you use to describe, you know, like use words like, uh, you know, she's like words like heat and expanding and, and like made me realize that when I, even at the beginning of our conversation when we talked about anxiety, what do you mean anxiety? What do you mm. mean? Where is it? Mm. Like, is it just, it's just an awareness really. It's just an awareness in my stomach or it's just a feeling when I feel like I might cry or whatever. It's just a feeling of heaviness behind my eyes. Like, and now if I can not attach a narrative to the bodily sensation or direct an outcome, if I can just feel it, what happens? I mean, it sort of will go. And that's what like the Eckhart Tolle and the Michael Singer and all those sort of bodywork sort of modern day teachers on this, subject to talk about is that there is michael singer he said the reason you feel like that is you've hold on to it all of the pain you've ever felt is still in there yeah. you let it go like and every time you start to feel like sad as you might call it or fearful or angry get immediately become present and feel where it is in your body and allow it to come through you it's gonna it will come out of you it will come out of you be present and he was finding a kind of bliss in it by my reckoning saying wow i'm alive on a planet and i'm sad <laughs> That's cool. I kind of love that. He's incredible. I'm going to go see him, I think. He's one of the people I think I could drag some more out of. Absolutely. Please do. I would love to listen to it. I mean, it's also reminds me of what you, I think you had said about um, Deepak Chopra. There were, I think it was in your Instagram or something where you quoted him as saying like, are you going to be a prisoner of the past or a pioneer of the future? And it's like, the only way to be a pioneer of the future is to be present, you know? And if you're present, you can let go of that past bullshit. I mean, instead of walking around like projecting, oh, I mean, am I talking to you or am I talking to my history? I don't want to talk to my history. <laughs> you know, I've already been there. Mm. You know? Yeah, I do it a lot still, I think. Well, we do. I guess I'm going to have to really dedicate myself to this a little bit harder. We have no choice. I heard only the really sick people become saints. Like you have to be driven to it <laughs> by absolute <laughs> madness. <laughs> Otherwise, why else would you bother? Why would you give up yourself unless it was just unbearable in there? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Apparently, St. Augustine was a lunatic. They, and St. Francis. Augustine, it sounds like he was well into the, in his case, I believe, females. And St. <laughs> Francis, my understanding is, even after the process of uh, saintlyhood, sainthood had been achieved... Would have been a bit annoying, I think, bringing animals in the house, not wearing shoes and socks when the weather <laughs> was inclement. Yes. St. Francis. And also, I feel like he was a warlord. Yes. Chopping people's heads off on mad well, principality campaigns across what is now Italy. That's the thing, right? We can't escape our humanity, even if we're, or if they, not we, but if, if a person is a saint, you can't escape it. And I think that's why you were saying Michael Singer is saying that. I'm feeling sad and crazy and okay. By, this, by myself saying it, I'm slightly giving space and distancing myself and therefore I can celebrate being alive. Mm. And that's part of the repertoire of human experience, all of those emotions and phenomenon. I mean, I cannot act on some of the more kind of devastating or destructive ones, but I'm going to feel them. And yeah. not run away from it. To, well, I mean, I'm, man, I don't know exactly what he's saying, but that's my association to what he's saying. Yeah, I think don't act any of it. He's saying that you can <laughs> live your life in sort of bliss. It's available to you. It's available to you. Yeah. 
that's the other thing was when you were saying the thing about all the saints you know all of them also were a lot of them were very reluctant were they they didn't fancy it yeah and like the, the every it's like that kind of archetype of the reluctant prophet right like you know moses did not want to go up the mountain and see a burning bush it was terrifying you know i get the idea he was a bit shy yeah or maybe he had a stammer or something and yeah. his brother did the upfront stuff <laughs> aaron was the more chatty i mean maybe that's what i've picked up from the bible from the bible yeah as best i can i go to the source but i also read other things as well um yeah i suppose so when people are not reluctant saints i fancy they could be annoying they could be narcissists right it's like i'd say so yes i'm very saintly yes do you need any advice <laughs> no thank you yeah that's true all right back off <laughs> I suppose so. And even our Lord, take this cup away from me at the last minute. Not now, mate. You've done the hard bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Mm. It's true. It's true. It's like, it's like, and then, you know, like the Dalai Lama too. It's like, I'm just a monk. Like, don't, I'm not, I'm just like you. I can't conceive of what that man's inner life must be like, given that hasn't he only ever known monkhood? Hasn't he been just like a little boy, then a monk? then meditating eight hours a day always. It must be glorious in there. Right? Can you imagine? You know, I heard him speak once in New York City, and it was really powerful. I mean, it was on a teaching. It was pretty, like, intense and intellectual. Some of it I was like, I don't know what he's talking about. But it was, like, kind of watching him and kind of connecting to him. And at one point he's, like, teaching, and all of a sudden he starts crying. And I was like, oh, I didn't know, like, I mean, it sounds naive, but I didn't know the Dalai Lama would cry. And he was crying and he's like, okay, okay, okay. You know, I'm sorry. He's like, it's just sometimes when I'm caught up in the teaching and then I think of like the suffering in the world and then I think of the beauty and I, I just, I just start crying. So, okay, I'm, you know, so and now I will move on to the next lesson. And I, it was really, that was probably the most meaningful thing that I experienced with him. It wasn't so much the teaching, it was the, 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 the being, the person. It's always beautiful when someone does that, isn't it? It's always to be beautiful through the moment where someone comes to the edge of tears because I think this is often where, unless it's some sort of hysterical, lachrymose, self-indulgent fit, that's where we are able to touch eternity with them. Mm. It happens a lot in the 12-step context and you, the room goes silent and people feel it accept it and recognize that this is part of it this is part of what it is to be a human being so it's very beautiful it's very beautiful to have that and actually encouraging to know that the Dalai Lama mm. you know it's a, it's a pretty hard path if even the da Dalai Lama occasionally kills mosquitoes <laughs> if the Dalai Lama says there are wise selfish people and stupid selfish people stupid selfish people think of themselves wise selfish people think of others so then it's a, in a sense a pretty simple dilemma that we have here and I suppose I the things I hanker after are resolution ecstasy and I do know that what I'm supposed to do is absolutely let go absolutely let go not try to be in control at all there is agency, but I am operating on behalf of not this thing, not this conglomeration. No, I'm operating, I will feel it. If uh, the answers will come, if I'm, my own house is in order, if I'm doing the basic things, if I'm treating my wife correctly, if I'm treating my children correctly, if I'm behaving correctly at work, doing this interview correctly, 
drive home correctly, mm. just do these things, the world peace will take care of itself, you know? Mm. And um, I like it that, I like it so when time, sometimes I think greatness may be averted because I'm too often lost in triviality and snared in the quotidian that Stanley Kubrick wrote a 17 page letter mm. about how to take care of his cats when he's on holiday about don't pick that one up if that one comes in the room and make sure that you feed that one first. And that Gandhi, even when negotiating the end of British rule of India, still found time to weave and sew and mm. look after goats. Mm. But it's not... The sort of abstract, grandiose version of ideology and philosophy has a certain amount of value, but actually life is lived here it's lived here in the present in the relationship with the person or activity that you are currently engaged in where else would god be yeah i mean it, it it's beautifully said and it, it makes me think of like that way in which you know anything and everything can be a form of meditation or a spiritual practice whether yeah. it's feeding your goat or what is genius you watch them like you see maradona like that's he's no, there's nothing else that's all he is there's nothing else that's how he can do it to him it's easy mm. to Lionel Messi it's easy mm -hmm. there's nothing else mm -hmm. like they are living that thing absolutely because there isn't anything else there isn't any compromise there isn't any contradiction or secondary agenda just the flow yeah just the absolute flow Jimi Hendrix we know it when we see it yeah we know it when we see it that is God that is what we recognize in yeah. them and the culture has created its new pantheon but as post-enlightenment individualism the rights of man humanitarianism or some pretty bloody glorious and incredible ideas that ended the medieval era but also perhaps meant that we did not access with such ease the grace and where that grace is truly coming from and that not everything is commodity not everything has got a price tag on it not everything is just some flash and then gone can't sell grace can't put a price tag on it and the, as you said it's that experience and when you started what you were just talking about you were talking about being in the rooms and almost like just that it's like a sublime experience you feel the sublime H have there been those kinds of where you feel and you said you see it when you see it you recognize it and when have you felt it? Like, have there been like transformational moments in your life in that way where it's like, I'm in that flow. I feel that it, this is the presence of something, you know, I don't even know how to call it. I'm lucky that I get granted pretty good access via the chaos. I get it. And, I, and I'm lucky that I live my dharma and that I do what I do for uh, my life. My livelihood is, even though I do get paid for it, it's, I do it all the time anyway. I don't ever stop doing it. It's what I've always done. It's what I've done since I knew it existed. And I've not stopped from the first moment that I knew it was possible to this moment right now. Awesome. It's not ever ended. And then more socially, I one time went skid row in LA. My wife was doing like a class with children there, making, doing craft stuff with them. So I was there accompanying her. So I wasn't like, I turned down the razzmatazz. I was a little bit around the back, just administering the, ingredients for play-doh to these children <laughs> but once the stuff had been done the work you know 
I fucking let myself off the hook a bit and turned up the revs and played with those children there in Skid Row. They don't know that they're destitute and homeless and poor. They don't know. But we know what's gone on there and how they're there and why they're there. And there was a bit where, you know, we play like you're a monster with kids and then you tumble onto the floor. And there was one bit where my whole field of vision was just these children's faces as they sort of piled on top of me. And when that happened, all I could see was their faces and their laughing, smiling faces. And there was nothing between me and God in that uh, for that little moment, for that little moment. It's happened other times. It will happen continually yeah. if you, I reckon, if I... Forget myself if I forget myself. Do you do you experience it in the comedy when you're doing comedy? Yes. When you're when you do you just get sort of lost in that moment in what you're doing? Not lost in a bad way, lost in a good That's way. That's it's most reliably found. I love it with I mean, a live audience. Yeah. Yeah, that's where I'm, what I'm looking for. That's what I'm looking for there. We go in there and you recognize that there is, the, there is a third thing. There is the generation of the material, like I'm trying to tell them things that I think are funny and I'm always alluding to some idea, I suppose. And then they are receiving it and I have to overcome feelings of anxiety, which always means that I think there's something to get or something to lose. And then like, after a moment, there is no separateness and then, psh, and then I'm in it. Ooh, I love it. You only know afterwards, of yeah. course. But like, uh, yeah, that's, I suppose, there is an argument, of course, that addiction is a, a sacred disease. It is a craving for the sacrosanct that you cannot live without God. You absolutely cannot live without God. And you live in a culture that doesn't offer you God because it can't offer you God anymore because it's trying to replace God with commodity or systems of material and exchange. So it can't just, not to yeah. talking about some mendacious globalist conspiracy i'm talking about unconsciousness they I know not you. what they do they know not what they do exactly. but they probably will act like they do know what they do which is annoying right actually. it's very annoying and it is it is very unconscious and you know as you know when we were talking about john verveke the the professor it's like the, the epidemic of bullshit you know and then it's just like what are we doing and that that god or grace or spirituality or sublime i mean it's right in front of us like you were just saying it's like i'm Suddenly it's here, I'm in a, com a comedy routine and it's just like, whew, and I'm connected. And, and yet it's like, it's, it's right, so it's here, but we've kind of like just pretend it doesn't exist or it's not in the, in the general consciousness, it, it's unconscious. Why are, why are we not awake to it more and more? And I think that's why I love a lot of what you're doing because you're saying like, hey, you know, wake up, you know, shine the light on this. Let's talk about this. Don't you see what's happening? Whether it's sometimes a political thing and sometimes and oftentimes it's spiritual thing. Hmm. You know, like what are we doing? And you even when you were talking to Eckhart Tolle, it was it made me laugh because it's like Eckhart Tolle, right? I mean, he is a very sublime dude, right? And all of a sudden you you somehow got him to say like, yeah, you know, people are just being stupid. <laughs> I couldn't believe he said that. He's like they're being stupid. You know, even he is like what is going on? Yeah. You know, what are we doing? We could, it could be so much better for us. We don't have to buy anything. It's right here. Yes. It's all that there is. There isn't anything else. Yeah. Hmm. But I, I still, uh, you know, it's, it's, we're in a very interesting moment. 
we really are. Are we getting called? Oh, oh, can I just ask you one more? Th oh, I didn't, I didn't even see that clock over there. You know, that little guy, it's only that that prevents me from falling off into the abyss, into the limitless it. kiss, oh, okay. into the endlessness. <laughs> 5829, like, because uh, I do a show here and that's what I have there, then I know. Oh. And I also, minute 15 is different to minute 23, you know, like if you're doing something for an hour. Yeah. And with stand up as well, it has to be counting upwards. You wow. don't want it counting downwards. That's terrifying. Fuck, he's going to end on zero. I can't cope with that. But it's like nice to know, okay, this is when you're doing stand up. Yes. Yeah. Okay, we're at 30 minutes. Because my experience, is even the very best, the Richard Pryor, the Bill Hicks. After s around 60 minutes, people are ready for somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I have that one minute. To th just, uh, the thing that I, was, that I came across that I wanted to just say to you is that, you know, this concept of the, of the Shakespearean fool, right? Mm, yes. So, I mean, I think of like, you know, it's, it's the person that's telling these wonderfully funny things. It's like you have the access to power, right? To be able to tell them the truth through comedy. And I was thinking about you and I was thinking about the Shakespearean fool concept. And I was thinking about like the, the fool is also the prophet, the one that can tell the truth and not get their head chopped off. So anyway, I was just, I was wondering about, oh, is it on? This is by Wild. If you want to tell people the truth, make them laugh, otherwise they'll kill you. <laughs> that's exactly it. I love it. I love it. Mm. So, yeah, that was all right. Well, that's Oscar it. Wilde, Oscar Wilde, Oscar uh, Wilde. Red Oscar, I read, uh, uh, you can't put him down. He's so funny and great. I love him. I love him. The importance of being earnest. Well, you should read The Soul of Man Under Socialism, which I'm going to read today. Okay. You should read The Selfish Giant and rip your own heart out and The Nightingale on the Thorn. His children's stories, as it was Will oh. Self who I heard say this, but I thought it myself, I don't know, I thought like I felt it before. His children's stories is where his real genius is. I mean, his genius is him, of course, Oscar Wilde. But like his children's stories, with self, read The Selfish Giant and The Nightingale on the Rose and like it's fucking it's like devastating to read like these are the things he wrote for children particularly when you think of this glib brilliant flamboyant yeah. man slipping off out of the house leaving his wife and his sons at home and going to get his get his freak on being the man that he was wow that he like that he comes from such a re deeply religious reverent place that even his talk about aesthetics and beauty was sometimes regarded as superficial, but he was talking about God, really. Yeah, exactly. Beauty in that context. It's mm. fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I am so appreciative of this interview. It's the calmest it's wonderful I've ever to been talk in to here. <laughs> I'm always in here. I'm frantic. I'm adrenalized with doing stuff. Adrenalized. I love it. Thank you. Well, thank you. That was Russell Brand. Thank you so much, Russell. To learn more about Russell Brand's Stay Free podcast, daily video series, guided meditations, stand-up comedy dates, which will be spectacular, and information about this summer's community, please visit russellbrand.com. Please come back next time on Wonderstruck. I'll be talking with Dr. Keltner, professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, faculty director of UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, and best-selling author of a stunning and important new book called Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. For more information about Wonderstruck, our guests, and some really exciting upcoming events, check out wonderstruck.org. 
and please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. We truly want to hear from you along with your feedback, reviews, and ratings. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook at Wonderstruck Pod. Wonderstruck is produced by Wonderstruck Productions along with teams at Bailey Newman and Freetime Media. Special thanks to Brian O'Kelly, Ileana Elefthiru, Travis Reese, Raph Cross, Phil Platt, James Carpenter, Joe Keeley, Lauren Gibbs, and Anne Harrod Wood. Thank you for listening. And remember, be open to the wonder in your own life. Thank you.